I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's Lent. 
the season when we seek to order our lives in preparation for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In this Lent, we're doing, um, we're doing so using the most well-known prayer ever written. We pray it every Sunday in worship. It is the foundational prayer of our faith. But if we are honest, we most often pray it from memory, our minds distracted a bit, but our lips moving somewhat after the sermon with little knowledge of the significance of these words and the story that helped to shape these words. What makes the Lord's Prayer so extraordinary, so worthy of weekly ritual, why we do this every single week, and why we're deep diving deeper into it in Lent, is that every time we pray it, we retell and we live into the story of God's salvation from the beginning to the end, from creation to redemption. Have you ever realized that the Lord's Prayer tells the entire story of Scripture within its words? And so today we begin where we always begin, at the very beginning, at the very beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, there was nothing but a formless void, and God said, let there be light and life. And creation sprung forth, or as John puts it, in the beginning was the Word, the Christ, the mind of God, the Word was with God, and was God. And we also begin at the beginning of this prayer that we know so well. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So when I was um, eight years old, around the same time, I was a ornery little child, around the same time as the other incident, I had a best friend named Alicia. Alicia was a bit bigger than me, a bit stronger than me, a bit braver than me, a bit stupider than me. <laughs> Did you have a friend like this? And so one year I came home from a vacation at the beach with this huge seashell. It must have been 10 inches long and it was curled around the edges. And I went over to Alicia's house to show her my treasure. And she looked at it, and then she held it up to her ear to listen into it. And then, sitting in the sunroom of her house, right next to this set of, of French doors, she said, I wonder what it would be like if we just smashed it through a pane of glass in this door. Oh. <laughs> you know, I wonder. <laughs> and so I looked at this huge seashell, and I thought, it certainly sounds fun. <laughs> and intriguing. How satisfying that would feel to like smash it through the glass of this window. Would the, would the glass just crack? Or would it shatter? I don't know. Eight years old, I want to know. But I had no intention of doing this on my own, let's be honest. I'm, I'm, I, I wasn't nearly as brave or as stupid as she was. And so I said, you can do it. And lo and behold, she did. And it made quite a sound, and quite a sight, and quite a mess all over the place. And only afterwards did we realize that our actions lacked what the, the CIA would call deniability. Um, and so I blamed Alicia and denied any involvement in it at all. Alicia lost her allowance and went to bed with no TV and no treats for a little while, and no charge was brought against me. But since I have never really agreed with 
Oh, since then, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't quite agree with those who think that kids are innocent. Um, I, I was certainly not innocent. What Alicia and I didn't realize at the time was that we'd enacted the Adam and Eve story together. In Genesis chapter 2, God our Father, God our Mother of heaven, not of earth, whose name is hallowed, utter mystery that should suspend us in awe and disbelief like a parent gives us instructions for our own care and we intrigued and a bit bored and quite frankly sure that our own way would glean more delight and fulfillment for ourselves chose to smash the window. That's the story in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that parent God, our father and our mother, gave Adam and Eve three Ps. Gave them purpose in the garden. Gave them permission in the garden. And gave them prohibition in the garden. The purpose to till the garden, to keep it, the words aren't really agricultural words. They mean to, to cherish the garden as a gift from God. To, to just cherish it. Centuries later, St. Augustine made a very helpful distinction between what we use and what we enjoy. The things we are to use are in, instruments that have a limited life. Um, the things we are to enjoy are, are the gifts that never run out in this world. So Adam and Eve are to enjoy, not to use the garden, but to enjoy the garden as this gift that will never run out but not simply to use it. The second P is permission. God our Father and our Mother gives us freedom to make our own brave or stupid choices. The permission to eat of every tree in the garden. We've already been told that this garden has everything good in it for you that you could possibly ever imagine. This is this fabulous playground, this sunroom, that's not off limits to you. Open up the French doors into it. And the third P is prohibition. There's just one prohibition in this garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe a better translation would be don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of everything. Just don't do it. Or in the jargon of our day, what part of no don't you understand? In short, there's this glorious playground in which there's a place and a role for us where we have almost unlimited freedom except one limit, which is for our own good, and we aren't given unlimited knowledge because the garden runs on something more important than knowledge. It runs on trust. If the man and woman want to know everything, they can, sure, but what they'll lose in the process of knowing everything they can know is trust. And most likely, they'll come to regret smashing the window. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we get a description of four kinds of disorder that ensues when we know everything and lose trust in our parent who has our best interests at heart and smash the window. Four kinds of disorder. 
And when we don't trust God, our father and mother, and forget to allow God's name to be hallowed and God's way to be hallowed, the first kind of disorder is, we'll call it just basic sin. Sin. Sin is this individual act of disobedience, perpetuated out of either perversity or stupidity, normally. The story gives us a definition of sin. It's the substitution of knowledge and experience for trust and memory. Substituting trust for more knowledge. The definition of sin. In the eating of the fruit and the breaking of the only rule, in the glorious sunroom of a playground, the man and the woman turn something that was to be enjoyed and cherished into something that was to be possessed and, and to be used. And we've all done that, right? We have all done this. We know what sin is like. The icons of sin are the greed that regards a cake as something not to be admired and enjoyed, but to be devoured. The, the lust that sees a, a beautiful person, not as a potential friend or, or respected stranger, but as an instrument of of sexual curiosity and a tool of frustrated desire, right? But these are only icons. In practice, we sin whenever we use what we should enjoy. Whenever we demand to know and experience and possess rather than to just be happy and trust and remember and cherish. Whenever we grab and cling instead of receiving and offering. Whenever we hoard to ourselves what there should be plenty for everybody. Uh, whenever, in short, we doubt that God, our Father and our Mother, in the tree of life has given us enough and proceed to make our own arrangements. That's what sin looks like. But there are three other kinds of disorder in this garden. The second kind of disorder we can call, let's just call it evil. Evil is when sin becomes a disease. When what is m meant to, what is, what is mean and, and what is cruel and, dis dis and, and distorted becomes what we actually think is meant to be. Becomes acceptable and normal and pervasive. In a story, the serpent represents this kind of evil, right? The evil that turns blessing and trust into scarcity and bitterness. Evil isn't simply sin with just a louder voice. Evil is the virus that turns misunderstanding into hatred. It's what turns assertiveness into vindictiveness. It's what turns concentration now into obsession. Right? There's a difference between sin and evil. Sin is when you know You've done wrong, you smash the window out of stupidity and hope you don't get caught for it. Evil is when you're convinced yourself that smashing things, doing what you're doing isn't just right, but it's, it's okay, it's worthy. When 5,000 people die in an industrial accident, that could have been prevented. Or when the Titanic goes down because its owners and crew were so desperate to break a record, they ignored the dangers. We're, we're talking about straightforward sins there. With, with catastrophic consequences, yes, but they're sin, sin. But when a whole nation 
is persuaded that exterminating Jews is a fine and noble thing, or when a group of young men prepare to take their own lives and those of thousands of others by flying planes into tall buildings. It's making what is horrifying, in fact, just and noble. You see the difference between sin and evil? The serpent portrays God, our father and mother, as not benevolent and concerned with our care anymore. But God, servant says, oh, God's just self-serving. God is hoarding the things he wants to keep away from you. Implies God's warnings are lies and suggests eating from the tree of knowledge is actually a good thing after all. Thus wrong is called right, right is called wrong, knowledge displaces trust, and evil enters the story. So we're disordered by sin, disordered by evil, and then the third disorder, collusion. That was my sin in that sunroom that day. Collusion refers to the whole range of cynicism, to profiteering, to ambivalence, to insensitivity, or to compassion fatigue. None of these would exist on their own without sin or evil. Few of them are so bad to be called sin, but all of them corrode and diminish and impoverish the glory of the garden. And so Adam has a number of possible excuses in this story. He could say, I didn't know where the fruit came from. Or he could say, she started it. <laughs> but at the very least, he colluded in the sin, right? I colluded in the sin. He didn't put up any kind of fight or even get any, in any kind of conversation about it. Eve, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't tell her you should not break the glass with the shell. Eve gets into a theological discussion even, but Adam can't take his eyes off the ball game for one moment and just eats whatever's put in front of him. Prods her on to smash the window with the shell. And collusion is every time we say, I'm too busy, or I didn't think anyone would mind, or I thought everyone did this anyways, or I thought it was best not to get involved after all. The story shows us how a mixture of commission and omission opens the door for sin and evil. And then the fourth disorder in this passage. We've got sin, we've got evil, we've got collusion, we've got all of it, y'all. And then finally, the fourth kind of disorder, which is hard to name, but I'm going to call it a lack of imagination. This is the kind of thing that we we try to put in a whole other different category in and of itself. We, we call it being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or having a misunderstanding, or being subject to unforeseen delays, or even being accident prone, or all these other names we call it. This is the, that territory of euphemisms, like a new employee being called not a good fit and let go, or two in-laws experiencing a clash of personalities. 
We might say it wasn't the woman and the man's fault that they happened to be around when the serpent came back with, from winning first prize at the Garden of Eden debating competition. It wasn't our fault, he was just a really good debater. I wonder whether you've, you've noticed that in communities where people do everything that they can to be nice to each other, including churches, almost nothing gets put as first degree categories of sin. And almost everything gets put in this fourth category called, it all went wrong and everyone's furious inside, but no one can say anything because we've all decided it's nobody's fault, right? We do that well in the church. And that's how communities of faith can slowly turn into communities of grudge-bearing resentment, too. And we've, a lot of us have been a part of those communities. Over the centuries, theologians have tried to take the heat out of Genesis 3 by saying it's simply a story about the human condition. But this obscures the fact that the human condition is one in which we continue to deceive ourselves about the reality of our sin. Christians proclaim that in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, we find that God, our Father and our Mother, forgives our sins and gives us the grace to forgive all other sins. But here's the rub. There's nothing in there about forgiving evil, collusion, and lack of imagination. The reason is that these other three disorders are all trying so hard, so hard, to pretend that they're not in fact sin. Trying so hard as to pretend that they didn't break the glass or that breaking the glass was just an accident anyways. Evil says what you think is sin is in fact great. Collusion says don't blame me. He did it first. Lack of imagination says I'm sure he didn't do it on purpose anyways. The trouble is that if it's not sin, it can't be forgiven. And so what's required is this painstaking work of breaking these other finely textured forms of disorder into individual acts of sin. For anything, any real change to happen. It's this slow business of breaking down evil, breaking down collusion, breaking down a lack of imagination into individual acts of sin that can be named and repented for and forgiven. That's what has to happen when a family falls out or a marriage hits rock bottom or a church goes upside down. Everyone is desperate to call it something other than what it is. And we love to do that. We love to be desperate to call sin everything other than what it is. These things happen. Don't hold it against her. Boys will be boys. Curious girls will be girls and will break the glass. But none of these work because the bitterness and anger is still there. Only one thing can deal with all of these cancers. And it's not forgetfulness or denial. It's truth telling and it's forgiveness. And that's only possible when you call it what it is. 
turning anger and resentment into fuel for forgiveness and reconciliation through the painstaking process of identifying and naming particular sins is such an exhausting business, though. It's so exhausting. And we feel we want to avoid it altogether. Otherwise, it would just take over our lives. This is why people say, I don't go to that church anymore because all they ever did was talk about my sin. Or I don't come to church during Lent because all we did was talk about sin. But this is what our parent, God, our father and mother, whose name and way is hallowed, who is invested in our care and wants what's best for us and calls us, calls us to this Lent. Identifying and naming particular sins is such an exhausting business. And that's why people don't like it. But that's why the season of Lent exists. And Lent is this game of, of two halves. In the first half, we confront all the collusion and all the lack of imagination in our lives. And we realize how invested and tangled up we actually are and bound up we actually are in sin without are being prepared to name it or face it or wanting to realize it. And, and so we fast and we pray and we read scripture and we confess and we give alms. And these traditional practices of Lent all remind us of how greedy we really are and self-centered and willful and deceitful we are and how we, we shattered the glass and aimed to get by with it. And then, in the second half of Lent, like the, the second half of a soccer game, we turn and face the other way. We turn the attention away from ourselves to Jesus, the second half of Lent, to this path to the cross. And we realize that evil is something only God, our Father, God, our Mother, can overcome. And the way God overcomes evil is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in short, the, the, the stupidity of sin is something we spend the first five weeks trying hard to overcome in Lent. And it costs us a lot. It does. But the perversity of sin is something we spend the last two weeks of Lent realizing only God can overcome and it costs God everything. Did you hear that? We spend the first five weeks of Lent dealing with our own sin, and it costs us a lot. But then those last two weeks of, of Lent, we realize that it's only God who can overcome it, and it costs God everything. Would you pray with me? God, our Father and our Mother, our parent God, who cares for us and tends to us and wants our well, us to, to, to live into the tree of life, not, not the tree of, no, of knowledge, of knowing everything, but into the tree of life, the tree of life in which your son had to hang in order for us to begin to name things not just as societal evil that doesn't affect me, not just as something I will look away from or someone else did, but I didn't. 
not just as, oh, people will just be people, but as sin, as choosing knowledge over trust in you. And so, God, we confess today all the ways that we choose knowledge, choose to know over trust. And the knowers in the room struggle. I think of all the ways that we would like to have our lives in control and to have our path planned and how to get our, our ducks in a row and, and how we bulldoze over what you might be calling us to do how you might be leading us to live in an effort to just know all the answers. God, we turn towards you like the second half of a soccer game. We turn in another direction, and we turn towards your cross, and we turn towards your truth, and we trust in it. We trust in you. We trust that you have our best interest at heart. We trust that you know what is best for us. We, we trust that you care, that you're shaping our life along the way of life, toward the tree of life. And God, our parent, our father, and our mother, knows when we sin and when we collude and, and when we try to pass it off as something else. Teach us to pray in the way that you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. It is.